Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we will be discussing the book Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story, written by Angela Sini and published in 2017. And today I want to start off our discussion with a quote from the book about the author's own experience. She says, quote, When I was promoting my first book, Geek Nation, I went to the city of Sheffield to give a talk. When I finished, a short, middle-aged man came over to ask some questions in private. Where are all the women scientists? Where are the women Nobel Prize winners? He asked, sneering. Women just aren't as good at science as men are. They've been shown to be less intelligent. He walked up so close to my face that I was literally backed into a corner. What was a sexist rant quickly became racist, too. I tried to argue back. I listed the accomplished female scientists I knew. I hastily marshaled a few statistics about school-age girls being better at mathematics. But in the end, I gave up. There was nothing I could say for him to think of me as his equal. End quote. I'm starting with this quote because one of my very best friends has a family member who frequently lectures their family, including the young girls in the family, about the scientific evidence that proves men's superiority to women. So for myself, for my friend, for all of you listeners who have ever found yourselves caught off guard and wondering how to respond when you hear about women's quote unquote proven inferiority, today's episode will hopefully provide some sound bites to use next time that happens. And I'm so excited to welcome to the program, Dr. Chantal Dolan. So thank you so much for being here, Chantal. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to have this discussion with you. First, before we get to the book, we'll talk about the author just a little bit, and this will just be a very short bio about Angela Sini, but I'll just read what I found on her website. Angela Sini was born in 1980 in London, England. Her parents are from India. She has a master's in engineering from Oxford University and a second master's in science and security from the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Between 2012 and 2013, she was a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And she's given distinguished and keynote lectures at Yale, Princeton, Oxford, and other notable institutions. She published the book we're reading today, Inferior, How Science Scott Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story in 2017. And it has since been translated into 14 languages. And then her most recent book is called Superior, The Return of Race Science. It was published in May 2019 to great critical acclaim, and it's become a finalist for various prizes. And she's now working on her fourth book, which explores the roots of male domination and patriarchy, which will be published in 2020. And obviously, I can't wait to read that one. I wish that it, you know, were coming out in time to be in season one of the podcast, but that'll be one I'm looking, I'll look forward to reading. Diving into the book, we're going to format the conversation like we always do, just taking turns, kind of highlighting sections that we thought were interesting and then talking about them. And I wanted to start just with something from the introduction before we even get into the meat of the chapters, but I thought this was really significant. So she says, 
In a study published in 2021, psychologist Corinne Moss Rakusen and a team of researchers at Yale University explored the possibility of gender bias in recruitment by sending out fake job applications for a vacancy of laboratory manager. Every application was identical, except that half were given a female name and half a male name. When they were asked to comment on these potential employees, scientists rated women significantly lower in competence and hireability. They were also less willing to mentor them and offered far lower starting salaries. The only difference, of course, was that these applicants appeared to be female. So I wanted to start out with that because I still have heard certain men claim that there's actually no gender inequity, even in STEM. And and men will say, you know, women, it's true, women aren't in these positions as much as men are, but it's because the women choose not to be. But there are still just many, many ways, which is what this this study demonstrates, right? That That women are disadvantaged in blind studies. This is proven because we're still battling this unconscious bias, hopefully unconscious, Usually, I do think it is unconscious. And and we've, as women, have even absorbed that unconscious bias, too. Oftentimes, even women don't want to hire women, right? And so this is still very much an issue across the board in so many fields, but especially in science. So I wanted to start out with that. Okay. I think I took the next chapter, too, Chantal. So I guess we'll kind Great. of bunch up a little <laughs> bit and then... Um, keep going with your chapters. But I chose chapter one, and it's titled Woman's Inferiority to Man. And she starts out appropriately for a science book with Charles Darwin. And I think it's so interesting. I had never really thought about this period in history when Darwin was first publishing. I'd never thought about it in terms of how it impacted women. But she says that many women's rights activists in the 19th century were at first really excited about the theory of evolution because it gave them an alternative narrative, um, an alternative to the, the religious stories about men and women that are in the Bible, obviously. And so she quotes historian Kimberly Hamlin saying, quote, Darwin created a space where women could say that maybe the Garden of Eden didn't happen. And this was huge. You cannot overestimate how important Adam and Eve were in terms of constraining and shaping people's ideas about women, end quote. That is still true for sure. And so, you know, you can just imagine these women who are are advocating for, you know, women's right to vote and to to deconstruct the laws of coverture so they're not owned by their husbands and their all of their property go to their husbands in marriage like they're they're trying to fight for women's rights but based on an an argument of equality that isn't found in their laws because their laws are all based in the the judeo-christian tradition and so then when darwin publishes they're like oh my gosh actually you know we, we can turn to science instead of just being uh, stuck with these misogynistic religious views on women. So when they read then Darwin's views about women in his book, The Descent of Man, they were devastated because Darwin's views about women were actually not, not that much better. And Sine sums it up this way. 
Quote, in The Descent of Man, Darwin argues that males gained the advantage over females across thousands of years of evolution because of the pressure they were under to improve in order to win mates. Male peacocks, for instance, evolved bright, fancy plumage to attract sober-looking peahens, and male lions evolved their glorious manes. In evolutionary terms, he implies females can happily reproduce no matter how dull they are because they're the ones that give birth. They have the luxury of sitting back and choosing a mate while males have to work hard to impress them and compete with other males for their attention. In this vigorous competition for women over millennia, the logic goes, men have had to be warriors and thinkers. And this has honed them into finer physical specimens with sharper minds. Women are literally less evolved than men. She quotes Darwin, quote, the chief distinction in the intellectual powers of the two sexes is shown by man attaining to a higher eminence in whatever he takes up than woman can attain, whether requiring deep thought, reason or imagination or merely the use of the senses and hands. Thus, man has ultimately become superior to woman, end quote. <laughs> That's just depressing. It's so depressing. <laughs> like, I feel it in my chest. Like, I feel a devastation. Oh, it's so hard. So she, so Angela Sine writes that, like, multiple women were writing letters to Darwin after reading this and saying, this cannot be what you really mean, right? And and they have letters in Darwin's own handwriting responding to these women and saying, I'm sorry, but women really are intellectually inferior. This is what the science is proving. And so this is kind of the first example of, you know, what, what she titles her book, How Science Got Women Wrong. And then the rest of the chapters will explain other outdated, but still often believed and often quoted ideas. So that was the first kind of foundational concept from Darwin. Okay, so Amy, the chapter that I wanted to highlight next is chapter three, which is called A Difference at Birth. And that's really the question, right? Are there inherent biological differences between boys and girls present from birth? So Sine describes an experiment performed by Dr. Simon Baron Cohen, not Sasha Baron Cohen, because, <laughs> you know, I, kept, because, I know it's really hard to read. Right. I kept <laughs> laughing. Like a joke. I know, exactly. <laughs> and he's actually a real scientist. It's uh-huh. not like a, a joke. It wasn't a, it wasn't a prank. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> and um, Jennifer Connellan, who to me sounds like Jennifer Connelly, so totally. I imagine the actress. So to me, this is like a skit. Yes. Anyway, they observed these newborn babies. This was like supposedly an experiment. And each baby was shown two things, either Jennifer Connellan's own face, like live and in person, I guess her smiling at the baby. Mm-hmm. And the other was a mechanical mobile with a picture of her face on it. So they were trying to measure how long every baby looked at either the real face or the face on a mobile and or if they looked at all. And so this method is called, um, quote, preferential looking. And it's pretty commonly used in uh, in babies, for sure, Mm -hmm. in research. So here's a section from the book that I'll just share with you. When the results came in, a large proportion of babies showed no preference for the face or the mobile, but around 40% of the boys preferred to look at the mobile compared to a quarter who preferred the face. Meanwhile, around 36% of the baby girls preferred the face, while only 17% preferred the mobile. The difference is statistically significant. 
In 2003, he published a book called The Essential Difference. He says, the female brain is hardwired for empathy, while the male brain is built for analyzing and building systems like cars and computers. People may show varying degrees of maleness and femaleness in their brains, but as the adjectives helpfully suggest, men on average tend to have male brains, while women tend to have female ones. So, I mean, I just need to give an aside here that these statements that he's saying, like male brain, female brains, I mean, it seems to be based on nothing as far as I can tell. I think they're meant to get attention and to promote his own theory. They certainly go beyond this experiment of babies looking at faces or mobiles. And the data to me were just not compelling. But the narrative, this male brain, female brain, it has staying power. And my theory is that the narrative supports the current status quo. So people keep keep and want to perpetuate it. There's some kind of feedback loop going on. Mm -hmm. I know I keep hearing that from people. They, They always, when I talk about gender, a lot of people want to say, but men and women are different, but men and women are different. That's always right. like really important to people. And I, I think that's so interesting. And I'm still trying to figure out why. And I have lots of questions about this study, but I'll mm-hmm. let you keep going with it. And I'll ask him in a minute. Right. She also, um, Sione, writes about a case of an intersex person named Michael to demonstrate the limitations of such a hypothesis. Right. And then, yeah. And then she talks about a psychology professor at Cambridge uh, named Melissa Hines, who studies sexual differences as well. And so here's a part in the book about what we're we're going to hear a lot about, which is toy differences. And I'll read it to you. On toy differences now, she has little doubt left. One of the first studies I did in this area was bringing children into the playroom with all the toys and just recording how much time they spend playing with each toy, she describes. I was really surprised by the results because at the time, the thought was that toy choices are completely socially determined. And you can see why, because there's so much social pressure for children to play with the gender appropriate toy. She and others found in study after study that boys on average really do prefer to play with trucks and cars, while girls on average prefer dolls. The main toys are vehicles and dolls. Those are the most gendered types of toys, she says. Yeah, I have so many questions. Know, and right? My first question is how big, so she says there really is a difference. So yeah, how big of a difference is there? Right. And they do talk about that in the book. Here's the other quote about that. She says, Toy differences I like to compare to height, she explains. We know that men are taller than women, but not all men are taller than all women. So the size of the sex difference is two standard deviations. The sex difference in time playing with dolls versus trucks is about the same as the sex difference in height. Okay. So first of all, two standard deviations is that big? Right, <laughs> it's that, just, that it's is. significant, yeah. I mean, right? As a statistician, I'll tell you that usually yeah. two standard deviations is kind of what you need to hit to be, quote, statistically different. Okay. Um, okay. But then if I think, yes. Okay. So that's noticeable. It's, it's, it's noticeable. It's it's probably there. You know, you, you look at that. And you're going, okay, that's probably different. Okay. Know? So um, and this is from her book. This Difference in toy choices, however, is a far leap from the theory that the brains of men and women are deeply structurally different because of how much testosterone they've been exposed to. It's a considerable distance from Baron Cohen's claim that there's such a thing as a typical male brain and a typical female brain, one that prefers mathematics and one that likes coffee mornings. 
I mean, <laughs> you know, as an aside, I'm jumping in here. Like mm-hmm. that whole claim is just so offensive. Like, mm-hmm. why can't we like math and want to go to coffee shop with a friend? Because mm-hmm. everything has to be so dichotomous. That's stupid. <laughs> right. Like you said before, you know, there people are so wedded to this idea of, you know, men and women are different, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to the book. For him to be right, there would have to be noticeable gaps in lots of other behaviors as well. Those with female brains would have to clearly behave on average like empathizers and those with male brains like systemizers. According to Hines, this wasn't, isn't what we see. Tallying all the scientific data she has seen across all ages, Hines believes that, quote, sex difference in empathizing and systemizing is about half a standard deviation. This would be equivalent to about to a gap of about an inch between the average heights of men and women. It's small. That's typical, she adds. Most sex differences are in that range. And for a lot of things, we don't show any sex differences. End of the quote. So, And this is still the book. She studied an enormous amount of research and found that only the tiniest gaps, if any, existed between boys and girls, fine motor skills, ability to perform mental rotations, spatial visualization, mathematics ability, verbal fluency, and vocabulary. On all these measures, the boys and girls performed almost the same. Hmm. So Amy, I mean, I find this type of data much more compelling because they are looking across studies and looking for patterns and trying to make sense of everything. And it turns out that a lot of what they are seeing doesn't go along with the huge toy differences in that one toy preference study presented earlier. So to me, it really shows the importance of looking at a whole body of data and not just singling out one study with dramatic results. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So um, also from the chapter, in 2005, University of Wisconsin-Madison psychologist Janet Shibley Hyde proposed a gender similarities hypothesis to demonstrate just how big this overlap is. In a table more than three pages long, she lists the statistical gaps that have been found between the sexes on all kinds of measures, from vocabulary and anxiety about mathematics to aggression and self-esteem. In every case, except for throwing distance and vertical jumping, Females are less than one standard deviation apart from males. On many measures, they are less than a tenth of a standard deviation apart, which is indistinguishable in everyday life. That's amazing. I know. Data to me. So, Amy, the next chapter that I was just going to highlight just a tiny bit, this will be brief, is chapter four, the missing five ounces of the female brain. This Mm -hmm. continues on our theory of are the male and female brains really different? So an interesting chapter, but I'll just pull out a couple little things here. Um, Research in the 1970s and 1980s revealed that the number of American boys with exceptional mathematical talent outnumbered girls by 13 to 1. Since then, this ratio has plummeted to as low as 4 or even 2 to 1. What looks like a biological difference in one particular place and time can turn out to be a cultural difference after all. So um, they pointed out that London cab drivers have insane spatial memories because they have to memorize the intricate street maps of London. And she quotes uh, Paul Matthews, we're good at what the brain allows us to be good at. And as we become good at something, our brain changes to enable that. Playing action video games or with construction sets, for instance, improves spatial skills. So if a young boy happens to be given a building set rather than a doll to play with, the stereotype of males having better spatial skills is physically borne out. Society actually ends up producing a biological change. Hmm. Yes. I know. So interesting. So interesting. That is such an important point. 
Anyway, women who are remind back to the book, women who are reminded of negative stereotypes about female abilities in math go on to perform worse on math tests. Removing stereotype threat can improve both men's and women's academic achievements. So this just goes back to that whole concept of mindset and believing that we can do things has real power. Mm-hmm. So I'll just jump again um, to another chapter here. Chapter six called Choosy, Not Chaste. Going back to Darwin's The Descent of Man, this chapter really discusses the concept that men indiscriminately chase women because they feel a biological drive to father the most children. And women try to escape unwanted attention because they want to select only the best possible father for their offspring. So males produce millions of sperm and they want to spread the seed far and wide. And females only ovulate, you know, once a month, a finite number of times, you know, once a month for so many years, and then they want to fend off all the unworthy contenders. So they're trying to be choosy. Mm -hmm. And this is what it says in the book. It wasn't just about mating habits, but also about how the pressure to attract the opposite sex would have acted more heavily on males, influencing their evolutionary development by forcing them to become more attractive and smarter. Yeah, really, <laughs> it's hard to read that, you know. Yeah, it is. It's in, it's an interesting thought, and I just like oh, squirming. Right. I mean, it, it just feels like societal and cultural norms are being reinforced. Mm-hmm. I just question how much is DNA and how much of these behavioral stereotypes are there because they, both men and women, have been ra- raised to think they should behave that way, mm-hmm. and their behavior is promoted. Back to the book. Here's a quote um, talking about different societies and different cultural norms. Um, the Himba are an indigenous society of partly nomadic livestock farmers living in northern Namibia. So the cultural norm among the Himba is that it's as acceptable for women to have affairs as men, and husbands simply have to accept them. They profoundly challenge the theory that women aren't eager for sex or that they don't want more than one sexual partner at a time. So what's going on here is that they're giving us an example of a group of these hunter-gatherers in Namibia to try and understand human nature, right? Because they've been the least disrupted as possible. And here in this case... They've got a completely different cultural norm. These Himba women are allowed to be sexually active, basically, even in their marriages. Mm-hmm. Another example in the book is the Mosua of China, one of the few societies in the world in which women head households and property is passed down the female line. People practice what is known as walking marriage. This allows a woman to have as many sexual partners as she likes. The lover of her choice simply comes to her room at night and leaves the next morning. So these two um, examples, they're really interesting anecdotes. I'm not sure how to connect them to the current arguments um, other than they provide us with actual case examples and studies of cultures that have different norms and standards. So maybe it's not all predestined by our DNA. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that is what she's intending to show, Um, just that you can't claim that all human males Mm -hmm. are one way and all human females are the other way if there are significant exceptions to that. So it's not, not only is it different from place to place, but it's different from time to time, right? It's just any excuse to control women, it seems to me, you know, cultural controls or base animal instincts, either way, shouldn't we be able to rise above it and seek equality in our relationships? Mm -hmm. Um, And that actually leads into a, a chapter that I wanted to talk about just perfectly. So 
the the next chapter in the book is chapter seven, and it's called Why Men Dominate. So she kind of talks about some of the practices in these various parts of the world that really do oppress women. And she takes on uh, female genital mutilation, which most people now refer to as female genital cutting. And so um, this this procedure is becoming less common, but it is estimated that over 200 million girls and women alive today have undergone female genital cutting. It's just a shocking, shocking thing to learn about. So for people who learn, women who learn about it for the first time is definitely can be very hard to hear. It is hard to hear. It's hard to talk about it. I'm Mm -hmm. even reading it. It's hard to, to read it. One interesting thing about female genital cutting is that it is done by women. Yeah. And Sine says that the the women's reason for doing it is that if they don't do it, the community will shun them because they're impure and they'll be thought of as sluts. It feels almost physically painful to even mm-hmm. think about it. And it's shocking that it's so widespread today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is shocking to see how widespread it is. And I agree. I mean... In my view, that's a violation of human rights. And so that is, oh, but it's so hard. But anyway, to to move along, Saini says the reason for female genital cutting is simple. The torture continues because it does what it was always intended to do. A woman who has been cut as a child will almost certainly remain a virgin when she's older. It would be too painful for her to be anything else. And once she's married, a husband can be confident that she'll be a reliably faithful wife. It's as brutal a manifestation of mate guarding as anyone has ever seen. Right. So I I tend to agree with that. Um, she also brings up, you know, a, a lot of different cultural practices that harm women, like foot binding in China. Mm-hmm. And she she quotes Gerda Lerner extensively, which I, I loved to hear since I'm such a Gerda Lerner fan. Right. She, she talks about the Mesopotamian law that we talked about in the creation of patriarchy, where men could have sex with slaves and concubines, but women could only have sex with their husbands. And the Hindu practice of sati, where widows, when their husbands die, they Mm -hmm. throw themselves on the funeral pyre of their husbands because their lives have no value once their husbands are gone. And she talks about ancient Greek women who who were told to always have their eyes downcast in the presence of men because they were thought of as having a, quote, animal nature that lurked at the core of her being, and it was deemed necessary to tame her. Aristocratic women whose families had the most to lose by way of property and wealth had practically no freedom at all. They were kept indoors, veiled, and in the shadows. From the Mesopotamians to the ancient Greeks, all the way to the present day, societies have restricted and punished women who have dared to breach the moral standard. By Charles Darwin's time, thousands of years into this regime, ideas of female nature had thoroughly adjusted to the new normal. Humans began to see women through a lens of their own creation. The job was done. Victorians, including Darwin, believed that women really were naturally coy, modest, and passive. Female sexuality had been suppressed for so long that scientists didn't even question whether this modesty and meekness might not be biological at all. Amy, I think that last sentence was so key. You know, many scientists, and certainly many, many people in our society don't even question whether women are naturally modest, meek, or empathetic because of biology. 
they just assume it's so. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads us to the end, Chantal. So as we wrap up this book, are there any takeaways that you want to talk about? I just hope we can stop imposing stereotypes on each other and give our kids the freedom to be their best selves and ourselves and not have to fit into predefined roles. I hope girls can grow up to be moms and scientists and mathematicians and empathetic and CEOs and boys can grow up to be bakers and caretakers and stay at home dads and, you know, really good spatial drivers in the taxi cabs. You know, I mean, it Mm -hmm. should be the best person for the job. Mm -hmm. I agree. The best person for the job. Here, here. We need in our culture, in our world, in our society, we need everybody to be their best. And yes. we need everybody's talents, you know, and we don't need just half of the people. We need all the people. We need all the people. Awesome. Well, let's leave it at that. That's great. a great last word. Thank you so much, Chantel. This was such a joy. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Amy.